0: to read this morning, Mark, uh, I mean, Mark, the first chapter all the way up to um, verse 12. So let's read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes, comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am just thankful for your word. God, that we have your word to instruct us, to lead us, to teach us, to to build this man inside this new creation that you've made. God, you've given us this word to speak life into us, to speak wholeness into us, to health and healing, to resurrect dead things and give life into dead places. That's what your word does. And so this morning, I pray that your word would go go forth and do that which you have purposed it, God, you have a purposed work this morning in this house. God, it's not by circumstance that this Sunday has worked out the way it is. It's not by coincidence that the people are here that are here. It's not coincidence that these things happen, God, but you have a purpose and you have a plan and it is working. So we'd ask that your word would work in us this morning. It would do its work and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, you may be wondering, why Mark? Like it's, uh, Mark is my favorite gospel, and you've probably never heard anybody say that, and maybe that's part why it's my favorite, because I haven't heard anybody else say it's their favorite. But when I read through the book of Mark, I get to see a picture of the gospel I don't see in the others. And I want to share that with you kind of this morning, and, and hopefully later on, as we continue to be able to look through the book of Mark, Mark is, is the only gospel that's not written by an eyewitness. Now, it's maybe possible that John Mark was a teenager at the time, but he was a young man when he followed Paul, and when he worked with Paul and Barnabas. And so here you have a young man who didn't get to be the eyewitness of these miracles, he didn't get to be the eyewitness of what was going on, but yet he tells the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a compelling manner. And the reason why I love this is because it gives me great hope. You know why? Because I didn't see Jesus walk on this earth. I didn't see the miracles, I didn't eat of the bread that was multiplied. I wasn't able to to witness these things. But yet, I can be a testimony, I can be a light of who Christ is, amen? And so that's why I love this, and you will, as you read through Mark, if you do, you'll begin to see that he focuses on this identity that we have in Christ. Like, being in Christ, this new man gives us a new identity. Like, there's an old that passes away, And as Paul would say, there's this old man who would die and this new man who would come. And here's John Mark as he's writing this gospel, he focuses on this new man. Like, who am I in Christ? And there's this huge contrast that he begins to build with the world around us. And yes, this is what the world looks like when you're not in Christ. And this was what the world looks like this. And and here's all these pictures of what the world looks like, but here's what it looks like in Christ. And so, if you will this morning, I want you to go with me. And So John... I mean, Mark 1 1, says this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he makes this big statement at the beginning, and we might miss it if, if we're not, if we just try to jump in and read. But if I were to ask you where your story begins, where would you start? Would you start at your birth or maybe a defining moment that's happened? Maybe you speak about the nurturing. I grew up in a Christian home or I grew up not in a Christian home or I grew up in this environment. How would you say, would you you say, well, I went through this struggle? Or, man, there was this great time that I had, like like this happened and it, it was happy. Like if I ask you your story, where do you begin? And so John Mark starts in the beginning. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is how it starts. The gospel of Jesus starts like this. See, beginnings are where our identity begins to shape, and where our story begins begins is where our identity begins to be shaped. Oftentimes, our circumstances are used in shaping who we are. Someone might say, well, I'm a single mother, or I'm a single father, or I'm a grandparent. Like, we have these life situations that sometimes shape who we are. A lot of times for men, it's your job, right? Right? Your job begins, I'm this, or I'm that, I'm a salesman, or I I do construction, or uh, I work in this field or that field, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor. Like these, our life begins to be shaped by all these peripherals. But what we believe about ourselves shapes what we do. I mean, think about that. If you go, I cannot play an instrument, I mean, that kind of shapes what you do, right? You don't spend time playing an (laughs) instrument. And you're like, oh man, I love football. If that's you, then what were you doing last night, right? <laughs> you were sweating it out for a little bit, but but then you then <laughs> then you got calmed down, right? <laughs> you see, it, it was it was funny. Like uh, this past weekend, a lot of us were here at the marriage conference, and um, I, I, I walk in and I get to meet, You know, being a new here, uh, old and new. There's some older faces that I've met, and some new faces, and there's some refaces that I'm refacing, you know, that we're kind of getting to know again. And I remember walking into the room last night, and uh, Keith, he, he's probably not here, so it's probably good. I can talk about him when he's not here. It would be embarrassing. If he, but I remember walking into Keith, and, and he's there, and I'm like, hey, buddy, you know, this is a plus one event, right? <laughs> he's all by himself, and he's like, oh, man, should I have brought a date? I was like, well, if that's what you're thinking, you really need to be here. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's fun getting to, to meet. The people here at Christ Chapel and, and getting to have that inter, that back and forth and getting to know you and getting to hear your story. And I remember as we sat down at, at lunch, he begins to tell me his story. It just come out. And I, I, I got this grin on my face. He probably could see it and he probably misread it, but I'm sitting here thinking, man, this guy is preaching my sermon to me right here. <laughs> because here he is, he's telling me about his story. And he begins it, yeah, there was this great tragedy that happened in my life, but guess what? But God, but God, God did this. God showed me this. God, and he kept, I'm like, well, tell me about that. And he keeps on and on about God and God this. And, and the whole story is here is God in the midst of this broken space. And here is why the self-help gospel is so dangerous. Because if our identity is shaped by the world, or if it's shaped by culture, or if it's shaped by self-image, then it's not shaped by the gospel. But if our life is shaped by the gospel, then our story narrative is not about ourselves. It's, uh, but God, but God, but God. This was the situation, but God. It was dark, it was dim, but God. It was lost, it was hopeless, but God. And I I remember, I don't know if any of you, Keith Green um, man, am I dating myself? No, I'm not that old. But um, I, when I was in college, I used to collect records, and somehow I c- got a hold of these Keith Green records. And I remember sitting listening to Keith Green, and he was this 70s hippie. Um, this, it's, I, I was being nostalgic for bit, But uh, some of you may know him, and, and he would just play this piano and kind of do this, um, he I don't know, he was real free in his worship. And I remember... I don't remember much from all that, but there's one line that he said that's always stuck with me, and he said, I love hearing people's story when they get to the but God moment. He's like, because I'm always waiting in anticipation because I know that there's that but God that's coming. And that this is a situation, but God stepped in. And if, if we are shaped after lesser things, then they become limits that we have to move out of the way. You see, if, If our life is shaped by our situation, if it's our marriage situation or our life situation, then those become limits that we have to move. Like we have to rise up and be strong. Or we have to think happy thoughts. We have to speak happy words. Or if we just have enough faith, we can move it. You see, that's the danger if our life is shaped by all these other things. Now catch this point, because... I think this is a huge point that Mark wants to lay down in the beginning of his story. It's like, what is shaping your life? Father, mother, son, daughter, husband, what is shaping your life? Are you shaped after culture? What has given you your identity? Is it from Hollywood? Is it from your work environment? Is it from situations, circumstances? Because if so, then those things become limits in your life. And if it's work, then I've got to climb the ladder of success to get higher. If it's your wife, well, maybe i got to get a new wife because this one ain't doing it for me. Or if it's your children, oh, man, maybe I just shut them in a room or hide them away or make them do this or... Force them to do this. If this becomes what shapes our lives, then they become limits. But if the gospel is what shapes our life, then our weaknesses are not limits. They become launching pads for the gospel. Catch that. I got a lot of amens. Good, because you've seen that in your life. But I believe that this is a central point that Mark wants to make in this gospel is that this is the story. If your life is shaped by something else, then it will limit you. But if your life is shaped by the gospel, then you had your void, your weakness becomes a launching pad that launches you into the ministry that God has set in front of you. Amen? So Mark writes his gospel. The beginning of the gospel starts like this As it is written in the prophets, behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his past straight. Now, as Mark was writing this, he would have known his audience. His audience would have been a very Jewish people. And so they would have had a very good history of the Old Testament. In fact, uh, as these young men were raised, they were taught to memorize scripture. They, uh, Most of them had memorized the Torah, what we would call the first five books of the Old Testament. They would have this memorized. And if they were Moving further along in, in their Jewish teachings, and they would have memorized the prophets and the Psalms, and they would have this stuff in them. Like they would get up in the morning and go to Bible school. They had Sunday school every morning. And in Sunday school, they would memorize a lot of scriptures, and they would go back over the Old Testament over and over again, and they would rehearse these writings. And so, Mark, as he's teaching, and he brings up this prophet's, everybody's mind calculates back to it and they're like, oh yeah, I know that story. And so by Mark starting his gospel as it was written in the prophets, here's what he's doing. For the gospel to be good news, it has to invade bad places. Now catch that. If the gospel is good news, it has to invade a bad place. And this is the gospel. While we were yet enemies with God, He in His foreknowledge and His love and His goodness and His knowing ahead sent His Son for you. That's good news. Why is it good news? Because while we were yet enemies of God, like we were dark, we were lost, we were desperate. And if you're here this morning and that's your situation, there's good news. If you see your life as hopeless and lost, there's good news this morning. And that good news is Jesus. And Mark's gospel begins in this broken place. I mean, he goes right to it. The beginning of the gospel is like this, as is written in the prophets. Now, let's look back at the prophets. What are these saying? Well, he quotes two prophets here, and the first one's Malachi 3. And it says, The Messiah will come and bring judgment. I mean, that's what his people are hearing. Ooh, God, God's ever in judgment? That there's going to be this refining that's going to come to the house of Israel. And Malachi brings a message of repentance to the priesthood exactly. Because the priest had gotten it wrong. Worship had become corrupt rituals where you could pay for forgiveness. You could buy a sacrifice and they would alter it for you and it was done. Caring for the poor and widows and the orphan had been ignored. And in Malachi, he's very specific to let us know what justice looks like. I know in our world right now, there's a lot of talk about justice, right? Being social justice, being a justice warrior. I'm a, just a little keynote here. The world doesn't get to define what these terms are. The world doesn't shape what we believe about justice, amen? The world doesn't get to do that. The Word of God has already done that way before the world even started. God defined what justice was. And when he looks at his people, he goes, you're not living justice. My idea of justice, you're not living. Because you become self-consumed, self-absorbed in your own things and and making it right yourself. And he, he goes, I want to give you my heart. He goes, look at me, children. I want to give you my heart. If you're a father in this room, you know what I'm talking about. You want your children to carry your heart. You want them to value the things you value. You want them to respect the things you respect. And so here is Malachi who brings this judgment. Mark brings this back to our mind. He wants us to start in this spot where God has said, I'm gonna judge you because of these things, because the tithe was being ignored. Now, these are some pretty big allegations, wouldn't you think? And why would Mark start here in his gospel? And he lays down this foundation of Malachi, and then he brings us to Isaiah. And Isaiah begins to warn us that sin would bring judgment. But then here comes the good news. Catch this. Yes, this is the dark state of Israel. This is the condition of Israel. This is where Israel's at right now. And I would wager to say to us in this house, like this is where the church is at in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. This is where our culture is at. We no longer live in a Christian nation. But there's good news. Isaiah said, but a servant, and he called him a man of sorrows, would be pierced for our transgressions that his kingdom would be restored, that he would tend his flock as a good shepherd, that he would break the bonds of of the abusive slave masters, that he would lift up the weary and strengthen those who are weak. This is how Mark starts his gospel. Mark says, yes, the situation is bad, but God is not short in fulfilling his promises. Amen? That God is not short on acting. He's not weak, but his time is coming. He's going to do it. The promises he made are being fulfilled. And I would say to you this morning if, if you've been sitting waiting on a promise, this message is for you this morning. Because it's a reminder that says yes, the situation may be bad, but salvation is coming. It's coming. It's coming. So, Jesus begins, Jesus' beginning is not here on earth. This is something that all the gospels make very prevalent. They want you to know. None of the gospels start, here's Jesus a baby, or here's Jesus in his ministry. All the gospels start before this. You know why? Because Jesus wasn't an afterthought. Jesus wasn't, the, oops, we got to fix the, the mistake. Jesus wasn't a break in the time continuum, he didn't need Marty McFly to build a time machine to go in and correct it. Like, he wants you to know that before everything got started, before the situation got bad, before Israel was in a bad place, God had already provided the answer. That's freeing for some of you in this place. Or maybe you're listening online and you hear that. And you're in a dark place. And Mark wants you to know that before the dark place ever started, God had already had a plan in place. Before the deep hole that you're in, before you got there, God had already purposed a plan. You see, Jesus' identity was not set on earth. It was set in eternity. Long before his day came, before his baptism, Jesus was prophesied. And here's the evidence. The gospel starts with preparation. This isn't an accident. God doesn't need a time machine. God eternal has purposed the hope for mankind and a display for his glory, and that is Jesus. And he sets it up, and he starts off in verse 4. He says, And John appeared, baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now John was clothed... Sorry... And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so now in this picture appears John the Baptist. And Mark spends a bit of time to let us know who this man is. Now, he doesn't give us the lengthiest example of of John the Baptist, but he he makes it prevalent and he makes points very specific in this. And that here is John the Baptist whose beginning was purposed before he began his ministry. How do we know that? Because the prophets prophesied that a man would come, that he would prepare the way for the Lord. Like John's beginning did not begin at the Jordan River. And the value of this, I think, for us that Mark wants to tell you is that your beginning didn't start the day you were born. Your beginning didn't start the day you were saved. Your beginning didn't start at a certain circumstance in your life. Your beginning was purposed in his, in, in his eternity. That God had set in his mind your purpose and your identity and who you are and what he would work through you. And Mark wants to tell this in the story of Mark. I mean, the story of John the Baptist. You see, John knew his identity. He knew who he was. And we know this because John came and he preached and he said, I am he who is preparing a way because there's one who comes after me who's greater than me. Like, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. John knew who he was. And I believe Mark tells us this because he wants us to hold this truth, that because John knew who he was, we can know who we are in Christ. We can know what our calling is. We can know what our purpose is. We can know that there is a work that God wants to do through us, and it's not hidden from us, but it's prevalent, and we can see it and know it, and then we can enter into it. Like, this is good news. Because a lot of times we get saved and we're like, okay, what's next? What's next? Um, what do we do now? And maybe you've been sitting in church for five or ten years and you're still asking that question. But see, John knew what his identity was. He was a voice. He was to preach. And he knew his home would be in the wilderness and he lived in the wilderness because he knew that there was a set-apartness that God had given him. You see, John the Baptist was baptized in the womb. He was baptized with the Holy Spirit in the womb. I mean, it's like, from an early age, he knew, and his, his father was a, high, a priest, a high priest at one point. He was a priest in God's house, and that means that John would have been brought up with all these teachings of the Bible. He knew the text. He knew the Old Testament. I can only imagine as he's reading through the Old Testament, as he's reading through the book of Malachi, and he's reading through the book of Isaiah, he reads and he goes, light bulb. He goes, oh, that's me. That's my calling. That's my purpose. Now, I believe as Zachariah, his father, prophesied over him that his father taught him what his purpose is. But I believe, too, that when he opened the scriptures and he read that there was a light that began to reveal. And I want to tell you this morning, sir, ma'am, young person, that if, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, God, what is my purpose? What Can I tell you what's going to be in this book? It's going to be found in these pages, and when you begin to open it, and when you begin to read it, and when you begin to study what His Word is, you're going to read, it, and it's going to come alive, and a light bulb is going to go off, and you're going to go, "I know it. I know what my purpose is. I know what my calling is." But if you haven't been in this Word, then you're going to be in the dark, because this is light. So here John is. He's he's a voice. He's preaching in the wilderness. And he's clothed in camel hair. Now I, I know it's like we say you kinda you kinda picture you can picture this, right? <laughs> I, I kind of picture some guy walking through like Bigfoot, right? <laughs> in this shaggy carpet. And some of you know Lee McBride, and he he has a hilarious story of uh, he was over in uh, it was in Columbia, and he put on that that orange carpet grape suit, <laughs> like that uh, a gorilla suit. And you can kind of picture like there's this, this man, that would be very odd. Although I don't think he was wearing a, a Bigfoot suit. The, what the camel hair clothing would have been a very basic clothing of the day. It would have been the workman's dress up. And I'm not talking about like carnards, I'm talking about like dickies, right? You ever wore those? I don't know, in Rangers we used to have to wear the dickies for the uniform. And, like that has to be the stiffest clothes I've ever worn. Like they stand up by themselves, you don't have to worry about being in at attention because your clothes just lock you in right there. <laughs> and so here is John. Like he is dressed in the common man's dress. He's not dressed like the priest. He's not dressed like the world. He's dressed as a workman. You know why? Because he knew he was called to a work. And he had a belt around his waist because what they would do is they would pull up their garment. They would tuck it in their belt so they could work. And that's why he wore a belt because he worked. Like, John knew who he was, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Like, he lived on the provisions of God. And so, John, Mark gives us this picture of John because he wants us to see a contrast. And I want you to see this with me this morning. Like, there's a contrast. The gospel life is very co- contrastly different. It's a stark contrast from the world. If you've been in Christian for a short time, you've realized that, right? You've felt that. You've been like, oh, I'm going to go do this, and the world just opposes you and pushes at you. You go to work, and you're like, oh, I'm going to clean my mouth up, and I'm not going to cuss, and what's the next thing that happens? Like there's 20 guys around you just letting it fly. You see, Mark sets up this contrast here of Israel's current spiritual condition versus what gospel-centered life begins to reveal. The current religious structure was a show. It was having the appearance of godliness, but it was denying the power thereof. It was a very self-centered approach at reconciliation. You see, because of the rituals of the show that they put on, their means to reconciliation with God was getting the ritual done right. And because they had done this ritual for years and years and years, and it didn't seem to be solving the problem because sin never ended in their hearts. It never fixed the problem. They began to half-heartedly do it, and they began to not do it with their full heart and their full ten. And they began to kind of approach church as a half-hearted task. And I think it begs for us to ask the question, have I approached God half-heartedly? What does your grass look like? Is it crunchy? Is it brown? Or is it green with life? Is your life green with life? Because this is what the gospel does in us, folks. It is the water that nurtures us, that gets us green again. You see, you could buy forgiveness. It didn't matter how you lived during the week. It didn't matter how you lived during the time. You just go to church and you would, you would go to the temple. You would buy your sacrifice and they would offer it and then it was all good. We still have that system at play in church nowadays. In fact, it was what brought about the, the Protestant Reformation. It was, it's what separates us from Catholics. You don't get to come in this morning and buy God. You can't buy his forgiveness. You can't come in here and appease him with your money. He doesn't need your money. Yeah, we take up an offering, but it's not because God needs your money. What God needs is a humble and contrite heart. And what he asked for is that we would come and we would give this most precious treasure to him. You see, they had gotten to this form of church that if, if you did this, then God would do this. This kind of if-then response. And I think we have a tendency in church to get in this that if we come and we do this right, we pray right, or if we worship right, or if we do this right, then God will do that right. Like, there's a bargaining we can do with God. We can negotiate with God. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried that, but how many have succeeded with that? Maybe once it worked out, but what about the next time? Like, there's no bargaining with God. There's There's no negotiating with God. He's the God of the universe. And he doesn't bow to your whims. He doesn't come to you and ask you for opinions and ideas. If you disagree, read the book of Job. But they had gotten into this, and the the priest had become, they preached rituals and patterns of works, and that God is far away, and we must appease him with our works. Maybe you've heard that in church. And here is John, he was a voice, he preached a message of life change. He preached a message that there is a life that's different than the one you're living and it's being offered to you right now. And the the one who offers that, the one who get bringing that, the one who has the ability to offer you that, he's coming, so get ready. Repent, repent, repent is what John would say. He preached, repent because the life giver is coming and he wants to give you a new life. You've been leaning on this old structure, you've been leaning on this method and it's never worked, but guess what? The promise is coming. That through repentance, that through trusting in God, salvation, through faith, that God coming and making things right was about to happen. And he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know why he would say that? Because he saw there was a final sacrifice that was coming, and that sacrifice would be Jesus. Now, Paul would describe this contrast like this. In 1 Corinthians 18-29, through 29, he said, For the word of the cross, which is salvation through faith, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will tort. Where it is, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the, following, the folly of what was preached to save those who believed. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek and Gentile, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low to despi- and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that human beings might not boast in the presence of God. You see, the current structure said, put yourself together, and then put yourself on display. Show others how pious you are. Make yourself big and wise in the eyes of others. Or in church, they would say, you need to have a big marketing campaign. You need to have a flashy preacher who's up there who who preaches good self-help. But this is not what the gospel tells us, is it? You see, John wore lowly clothes. He chose to display Christ and to make himself low. You see, John's draw wasn't how well put together he was. It doesn't mean that we don't do things with excellence. What it means is that what we put on display is Christ. The current culture had a diet of personal consumption. Maybe you've heard this in modern vernacular as, you do you. You just go do you, do your thing. You see, but John wasn't consumed with you do you. John was consumed with his calling. He was so consumed with his calling that he didn't have time for personal comforts. He wore the basic clothes. He ate bugs and honey. Who's signing up, right? (laughs) But this is how consumed John was with his calling. This is how consumed God, what he was with his work. And I ask you this morning, how consumed are you? Because the beauty of this gospel, the beauty of this story, isn't that you have to step up and do these things. What Mark wants us to see is that God's already done it. And he sent that promise to you. The promise to be holy, the promise to be right, the promise to be good, the promise to not sin, the promise to fulfill the calling on your life. All those promises have been fulfilled in Christ. And here is Mark letting us know that this is how the gospel starts. The promise is here. The current culture says that we have to get ourselves together, that God helps those who help themselves. And, or the famous bumper sticker is, God is my co-pilot. And I wanted to know that, no, he's either pilot or he's Nothing. He's either first or he's nothing. You see, John appeared in the wilderness that he came in a broken place. He came in Israel's worst condition. He came when things were bad because he came to prepare the way for the gospel. You might ask, why do we spend so much time on these false narratives that are preached in church? And I, I know there's better things to preach about and there's more glorious things to preach about and... Paul himself said, I didn't come with you with eloquent words so that I could win you with my words. He said, I came, with you, came to you with the cross. I came to you with the story of Christ so that you can be one to Christ. And that's what I want to do this morning, folks. I don't want to come and be eloquent and, and have the best presentation. What I do want to do is come and bring you Christ so that you may see Christ glorified in this house today so that you may go to Christ. And he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw men into you. And I don't want you to be drawn to me. I want you to be drawn to Christ. Thank you. So why do we spend so much time on these false narratives? Because I want you to picture this with me. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a man who uh, was a priest in God's house, and he had gotten old. And the Bible says that he had lost his vision. Now, this was, he he become blind. And what I believe the Bible wants us to see in that is that there's a physical expression of a spiritual condition, that Eli had lost his vision, both spiritually and physically. And so God raises up a young man. I mean a young man, Samuel, who is sleeping in the house of God. He sleeps in the temple. He sleeps in the presence of God. Like this is where he's raised up. And God begins to raise up this young man in his presence. And then he comes to him and he talks to him in the middle of the night and he says, Samuel. And here's Samuel who he runs to Eli and he goes, Yeah, what you want? What's up? I'm ready to serve. What do we got to do? And he goes, right, What are you talking about? Go back to bed. So he goes back to bed. And again, the voice comes, Samuel. So he jumps up and he runs, Eli, what's I, I'm here, I'm ready. Let's do this. I'm 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 all ready. And then he says, I, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And so the third time he gets up and he runs in, he's like, Man, I am here, I'm ready, let's go. And I want you to, there's a contrast that the Bible paints in this. You've got one guy who has lost his vision, and you've got on the other hand a young man who's like, ready to go. And finally, Eli figures out, oh, well, maybe God's trying to talk to him. He says, okay, so if this happens again, just listen. And so Samuel goes to bed, and he wakes up, and the voice and he goes, okay, God, here I am. And so instead of running to Eli, now Samuel runs to God and says, okay, God, what do you have for me? And God says, I want to judge Eli because his sons are not honoring my temple. You see, Eli had lost his vision, and his sons had begun to pollute the temple. I don't want to become Eli. I don't want to lose my vision, church. And I don't want this church to lose its vision. Because there's a world out there that's dying, and the gospel is a very big contrast from the world. And if we tow that line, if we try to get as close to that line of the world as we possibly can, as some churches do, they want to be cool and hip and have the best show in town, and so they get right on this line and, The next thing you know, you've fallen over and you gotta. Oh, you gotta! I'm sorry, I I didn't mean to say that. That wasn't what I was trying to say about that. You see, a clear vision includes seeing potential dangers and pitfalls. Paul warned the church often of not following false gospels, and the gospel is is counter to culture, and there's a separateness that we're called to. You catch that, church. There's a separateness at which we are called to as a church, as people, as individuals. There's a, a, to be a part. Now, what does that look like? Get before God and he'll show you. In verse 9, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then he came up out of the water immediately and saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so here Mark is opening this gospel narrative and he paints a picture. He says, yes, the gospel goes into dark spaces and it brings a promise of hope and of redemption and renewal. And then there's those that are called alongside this work, meaning you and me, we're called into this work, this work of redemption that God is doing out. He's called us to be involved in it. And then he brings the central stage, the spotlight, comes right in on the central character, and he says, now Jesus. The gospel's about Jesus. You see, Mark wants to establish from the beginning that the divinity of Christ And he makes this huge shift in the story he's telling from John the Baptist and the condition of Israel and this guy who's preparing the way, and now it's Jesus. You see, if Christ was just a man, then there would be no need to write this story. See, Mark wants us to see God as relational, as reachable, as touchable. That he came and he was baptized by John, that he humbled himself to God's will. to the the divine purpose of God. Billy Graham said it this way, Jesus was not just another great religious teacher, nor was he another in a long line of individuals seeking after spiritual truth. He was instead truth itself. He was God incarnate. And so in this display, John is on the scene, he's baptizing Jesus, Jesus baptizing people, Jesus comes down and he peers on the scene and he peers into the story and the story shifts and looks at Jesus and here's Jesus is now being baptized and he goes under the water and he comes up and now we have this huge display of the Trinity like this is where Mark starts his gospel here's Jesus he is divine he is God And this is very important to what Mark believes. And then there's this voice that comes, you are my son. You see, John the Baptist was allowed to hear this, and I I think that's really cool. And maybe there was others there too. Uh, The the, the Bible doesn't really speak to that, but we would have to believe that everybody heard this big booming voice out of the sky speaking directly down. This is my son. And here John is, he gets to witness this. And how do we know? Because he tells us. And then he sees the heavens being torn, open. And here comes what he, what looks like a dove descending upon Jesus. And this is the story, this is the display that Mark wants you to see. Why? Because God here designates the title of son and father. See, he was declared to be the son in our flesh And here God presents his son as a mediator. Here is God come into our flesh so that he could be our mediator, so that he could be the means, the bridge, the gap between us and God that had been torn. He declares that he is father of us all. Ephesians 4, 6 says this, that there is one body and one spirit, just as we are all called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And here we also see the title of beloved. So this title of son is given, which denotes father, and then the title of beloved is given. I hope you can see this this morning because this is a beautiful picture. In ourselves, we are hateful to God, we're enemies. And in his fatherly love, it must flow through us to us through Christ. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians one and five through six, and who hath predestined us into adoption by Jesus Christ in himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and to the glory of his grace, in which he has accepted us in the beloved. Like this now, Mark is wanting you to see that God has created a doorway for us to be sons, for us to be loved. And that's like this morning when we sing grace on top of grace. When we sing about the amazing grace of God, this is what we're talking about. Because God came and he made a way for me and you to enter into his sonship, to call him father. He invites us to call him father. What a privilege that he invites us to be loved by a perfect father. Some of you guys didn't have a good father. Some in this room didn't have a father who was good, who loved you, who treated you right. Some of you did, and you don't, you, but some of you don't know what it looks like. And God says, I want to invite you in to see. A father that loves, a father that cares. And Jesus Christ now becomes the doorway. This establishes that the love of God rests on Christ in such a manner that we may become perfectly united to God through the sacrifice of Christ. Titus 3, 4 through 6, Paul writes this, At one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You see... That's how Paul presents the gospel. And here's Mark explaining it deeper and going, look, the gospel invades bad places. And this is with a bad place that one time we were foolish, we were disobedient, we deceived, and we were enslaved to all kinds of passions and desires. And we lived with malice and envy of our heart and we hated people and we hated others. And this is who we are. This is who we were. But this is where the gospel invades But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. Mark chapter 9. In those days, Jesus of Nazareth came. Paul says, and, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, And renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having hope of eternal life. Mark opens and begins his gospel with two major statements. And if the band will come on up, I want to pull this in and, and bring this back to a place. I want you to catch the story that Mark presents us this morning in his gospel. For the gospel to be good news, it must invade bad spaces. If you've received the hope and the light of Jesus Christ in your life, it's because it invaded a bad space. He met you in the depths of your brokenness, in the depths of your sorrow, in the depths of your weakness. And if that's not your story, I want to invite you this morning to come, let that be your story. That in the depths and the darkness of where you're at and what's going on in your life, the hope of Jesus Christ is here and it's available to you. It's for you this morning through Christ Jesus. And the second thing I believe Mark wants to, to make a bold statement here is that God makes a personal statement to invite you and me to come into relationship with the Father he wants us to experience the love of a perfect father. And as we grow more deeply to understand the saving plan of God, the Father, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the circumstances in our lives no longer become obstacles, but they become launch pads for ministry.